Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Tetelestai, literally translated from the original Greek, it is finished, was one of the final seven sayings spoken by Jesus on the cross, recorded in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this word in particular, tetelestai, occurs twice in John's gospel alone and nowhere else in the New Testament. It was recalling back to the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed to God the Father in John 17, verse 4, which said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And on the cross, Jesus declared, Tetelestai. And as one pastor says, with that, the greatest of all work had been accomplished. This single final word is the capstone of the gospel. It's the cornerstone of our salvation. The entirety of the Old Testament leads to this final work and to this final word, Tetelestai. It is finished. Hence, given such significance, we must ask the million-dollar question. What exactly did Jesus finish? What was finally accomplished on the cross? Ironically, as important as this question is, there is much confusion about what Christ did on the cross as it has been mistaught and misunderstood by so many, by so-called Bible-believing Christians around the world throughout the centuries. The result of minimizing the work of Jesus on the cross has detrimental consequences. By doing so, we diminish the holiness of God. We undermine the sinfulness of man. And in return, we increasingly propagate our self-worth, attempting to accomplish self-righteousness by our own works which we know in the end is a failed cause, a dead end. Every other religion in the world attempts to do this, to get to God by our own efforts. Yet the cross is so mysterious, yet so profound. And the idea that the God of the universe would debase himself and give himself to death is preposterous and unthinkable to the human mind. And so that is why many have tried to make sense of the cross. Some people see Jesus' death on the cross as a model of love and sacrifice, that on the cross we see an example of true humanity, a model of self-giving that we should all carefully imitate. But if you only see Christ on the cross as a model to follow, you miss the purpose of Jesus' substitution and the penalty of sin Jesus paid by his death. And this is how you get theological liberalism, a rejection and departure from a core doctrine of scripture of penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus suffered the punishment of our sins by taking upon himself the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. Others see Jesus' death on the cross as Jesus' victory over the devil in an epic battle of good versus evil where Jesus ultimately wins. But is that all the cross meant? Some people see Jesus' death on the cross as a way, among many ways, God chose to bring about the salvation of sinners. As in God could have just snapped his fingers and saved whomever he wanted. But if that's the case, it begs us to question, was the cross truly, really necessary? These are just some of the popular views and theories out there that misconstrues Jesus' finished work on the cross. And there are plenty more out there that Jesus didn't really die 
that Jesus merely fainted, etc., etc. But our passage shows us otherwise. It shows us the holistic, full, and final work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is finished. The work of God's redemption is fully accomplished. So, what exactly did Jesus accomplish? And what does that mean for you and me today? We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word. And we are nearing the conclusion of our series in the next few weeks through part three, Sufferings and Glory, looking at chapters 18 through 21. Our passage today is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, the purpose and the hour of Jesus' incarnation, as foretold by Jesus on numerous occasions. It is the very center of the story of Scripture and God's redemption plan set in motion since the beginning of creation. The death of Jesus on the cross is ironically the high point of human history. It's the irony behind why Christians call this dreadful day Good Friday. It's the reason why Christians are Christians today. Blood-bought, born again, redeemed, and atoned. How unrighteous sinners are in a right relationship with our righteous God. It's the anthem and the resolve of the Apostle Paul's ministry and all who proclaim the good news of Jesus the Christ to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we, brothers and sisters, preach Christ crucified, though rejected, though persecuted, though maligned and marginalized by the world, the culture, and the society around us, through sufferings and sorrow, though they surround Christ crucified, we pronounce because we know, though a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles, but to us who have been called, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. Amen? Amen. I don't know if you guys are here this morning listening to these words. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. Hallelujah. So from our passage, I want to share with you seven reasons, seven reasons why Jesus was crucified in answering the question, what did Jesus' crucifixion accomplish? Seven reasons why Jesus was crucified. What did Jesus' crucifixion accomplish? Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. And let me just confess to you, it's seven points. It's a long passage. I'm going to try to get to the end, but we may have to stop at some point. So stay tuned. Here's the outline. Seven points. Point number one. Jesus was crucified to become our substitute from verses 17 through 18. Point number two, Jesus was crucified to be exalted as the true king. Verses 19 through 22, to be exalted as the true king. Point number three, Jesus was crucified to be poured out as the final offering. Verses 23 through 24 poured out, to be poured out as a final offering. Point number four, Jesus was crucified to establish the new covenant community. Verses 25 through 27. Point number five, Jesus was crucified to fulfill God's redemption plan. Verses 28 through 30. Point number six, Jesus was crucified to offer us forgiveness of sins and new life. Verses 31 through 34. 
to offer us forgiveness of sins and new life. And point number seven, Jesus was crucified to gift us repentance and faith. Verses 35 through 38. Seven points to become our substitute, to be exalted as the true king, to be poured out as the final offering, to establish the new covenant community, to fulfill God's redemption plan, to offer us forgiveness of sins and new life, to gift us repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, can I just confess to you, this text was so hard to prepare to preach. It's a lot of pressure to preach about Christ's crucifixion. So pray for me as I preach and pray for your hearts as you listen. Dear brothers and sisters, I sincerely pray that this word will encourage you and remind you anew that the creator and the sovereign God of the universe loves you deeply, loves you eternally, that he has chosen you to be his from before the foundations of this world and that his love has never wavered based on your deeds. John Stott, the late Anglican theologian, says, if we're looking for a definition of love, we should not look in a dictionary but at Calvary. J.C. Ryle says, he that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's debt to Christ must have a very cold heart or a very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when he could voluntarily endure such suffering for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. So brothers and sisters, let's approach our passage with sober-mindedness and humility, but also with gratitude and careful attention. Do not dismiss these words. These words are for you and me today. Pray for open hearts as you hear these words that God will speak to you. And I pray that whatever you are going through in all your challenges, in all your difficult circumstances, in trials and sufferings, longings and anxieties, that you will hear the words of love as you gaze upon the blood, as you see the mighty sacrifice. I pray that you'll have peace and shalom with God. Friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We've been praying for you. We really have. We've been praying that God would lead you to join us today, to gather with us today. So please know that you being here is no mere accident. We pray that you'll hear his words, his invitation for you to turn from trusting in the things of this world or even yourself and turn to trusting him. We pray that you'll hear about how Jesus, the son of God, died for sinners like you and me in order that we may have true life. And we pray that these words will make sense to you by God's help that all of your striving and wandering and seeking would come to a halt today, knowing that everything in your life has been pointing to Jesus all along. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the end. Jesus is whom you have been looking for all along. And he's inviting you today to hope and trust in him. So without further ado, let's turn to his words. Our passage will be found on page 905 and 906 of the Blue Bibles around you. I encourage you to please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of the message so you can follow along, so you can see and hear God's words for you. John chapter 19, verses 17 through 37. It says this. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, in which Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his, the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. What did the cross accomplish? Point number one, Jesus was crucified to become our substitute from verses 17 through 18. As we have seen from the previous chapters, chapters 18 and the first part of chapter 19, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas arrested by the Jewish leaders, denied by Peter, deserted by his disciples, and tried numerous times by Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and Pilate, the Roman governor. And what has been shown multiple times in multiple ways was that Jesus was indeed, in fact, innocent of the charges brought before him. And it was obvious that the charges of blasphemy and sedition and treason was all pretext by the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus in order to protect their own authority and eradicate any threat to their own power. We saw the ironies of how in turn the Jewish leaders became blasphemers of God themselves, claiming they have no king but Caesar. How they incited a mob to release a true insurrectionist Barabbas, a son rather than the son. And our passage leads us to a point of no return. We left off in John 19, 16, which said, So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Jewish leaders, to be crucified. Now, we don't want to dwell or need to dwell on the crucifixion itself, for John, the author of the gospel, does not do so either. 
nor do the other gospel writers. We need only to know that there was no more terrible death than crucifixion. Even the Romans themselves regarded crucifixion with shudder of horror, that it was the most cruel and horrifying death and a despicable death. It was understood, and I quote, a nefarious action such as that is incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. It was that death, the most dreaded death in the ancient world, the death of slaves and criminals. And it was this kind of death that Jesus, the innocent one, the only man that lived without sin was subjected to. Why? Why? Verse 17, look with me there, tells us, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull in which Aramaic is called Golgotha. The phrase, he went out, clearly indicates our Lord went out of the city gates of Jerusalem to be crucified. Trifling as this incident may seem to a careless reader, it was a striking fulfillment of one of the greatest types of the Mosaic law. The sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place on the great day of atonement in the Old Testament days was to be carried forth outside of the camp according to Leviticus 16.27. Write that verse down and look it up later. In which Hebrews 13 verses 11 through 12 confirms Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. John tells us in the next phrase, he went out bearing his own cross. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, the sinless son of God suffered bearing the load of sin, not his own. Just like Isaac carrying wood for his sacrifice on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, 7, right? Isaac asks his father Abraham, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? The answer to that question will be foretold by John the Baptist thousands of years later at the commencement of Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here Jesus, in our passage, like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter, went out of the city gates, bearing his own cross to the place of skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, a place of death. There they crucified him. Again, we don't want to minimize the physical torture the entire process of crucifixion was. The thought of carrying a crossbeam which weighed over 100 pounds on his shoulders after receiving such tortuous scourgings and whippings and beatings almost to the point of death and carrying such load for miles and miles down the Via Dolorosa was certainly the painful path of unspeakable suffering. John of this gospel doesn't speak of Simon the Serene chosen by the Roman soldiers to help Jesus carry the cross when Jesus was too weak to carry it further himself. But such detail only furthers the understanding that Jesus was, in fact, fully human while being fully God. That the agony of torture he suffered wasn't minimized because he was also fully God, you see. That Jesus was beaten to a near pulp and so broken and so weak, he needed help to carry the cross to Golgotha. It doesn't undermine at all the weight of the burden that Jesus himself bore to and on Calvary. That he would be the cursed man hung on a tree. That he would be the cursed serpent. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said in John 3.14, the son of man must be lifted up. 
John highlights this point through the final phrase of verse 18. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Did you notice the repetition? Jesus at the center of two criminals. Jesus lifted up between the place of sinners. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let it be known. Let it be clear. Jesus became our substitute to bear our sin, to bear our blame, to bear our guilt and shame. As Brother Matt prayed, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for you, for me. So dear beloved family, church family, do you gather here hearing, sitting, standing, and singing of the Son today, knowing the price of what it cost God the Father to sacrifice his one and only Son, to purchase you by Jesus' spilt blood, Are you here recognizing the cost that it cost for you to be here today? 1 Peter 18.20 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. How does such knowing impact your living today? Are you like our master, content to go forth outside the camp, outside our comfort zones, bearing his reproach? Are you like our master, willing to come out from the world and be separate if necessary to stand alone, to take up the cross daily, to be willing to be persecuted both for our doctrine and our living? Is this true of you? J.C. Ryle says, well, would it be for the church if there was more of the true cross to be seen among Christians? To wear material crosses as an ornament, to place material crosses on churches and tombs, all this is cheap and easy work and entails no trouble at all. But to have Christ's cross in our hearts, to carry Christ's cross in our daily walk, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to be made comfortable to his death, to have crucified affections and to live crucified lives, all this needs self-denial. And Christians of this stamp are few and far between. Yet this, we may be sure, is the only cross-bearing and the only cross-carrying that does good in the world. And if I may add to J.C. Ryle, the only kind of Christ-shouldering that is pleasing and acceptable and commending of our Lord Jesus Christ, our crucified King. The times, brothers and sisters, require less of the cross outwardly and more of the cross within. Amen? So again, I'm asking you, what kind of cross carrier are you? Outward or inward? Undistinguishable or unmistakable? Is your cross bearing marked by mere religiosity or a real relationship with Jesus? Jesus was crucified to bear your sins, to be your substitute. Point number two, what did the cross accomplish? Jesus was crucified to be exalted as the true king. Look at verses 19 through 22. It says this, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, 
It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to the Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I think by this point, Pilate has shown himself as the laughably pathetic and weak pushover. Yet he's still fighting for his peace, trying to show the Jewish leaders what little authority and control he thought he had in this situation. By his insistence on the inscription on the cross describing who Jesus is, Pilate has them write Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was Pilate's effort and Pilate's attempt to humiliate the Jewish leaders for humiliating him. Pilate was mocking their convenient allegiance to Caesar by insisting that Jesus is their king. Kind of like, you want it your way? You want to disregard my verdict? Well, in your face, right? Here is your king. How pathetic. You want to put him to death? The Jewish leaders, knowing exactly what Pilate was doing, asks to have the writing changed to, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But in the great irony which continues, God's sovereign plan unfolds unhindered. It says, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate's malice actually serves God's ends. The Lord Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. The cross is the means of his very exaltation and the very manner of his glorification. Even in the trilingual notice in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek serves as the symbol for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. Did you notice how many times just in those four verses the word written, the word in Greek grapho is used six times that Jesus is the one true eternal king had been written in the pages of God's book, foreshadowed and foretold of its fulfillment for many, many generations and manifested for all to see here at the cross. Hence, one commentator notes, and I quote, the two men most actively and immediately responsible for Jesus' death, Caiaphas and Pilate, are unwittingly furthering God's redemptive purposes, unwittingly serving as prophets of the king they are executing. The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree, close quote. That Jesus, crucified king of the Jews, would be the glorified king of heaven. That was unmistakable. As such, he was born as such, he lived. As such, he was crucified. As such, he will come again and reign over the whole earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords was written. Hallelujah. So, dear brothers and sisters, do you know and serve Christ, the crucified king? Not just any king. Not just a high and lofty king out there, up there. Not just some untouchable, unapproachable king. But a righteous king. A humble king a loving king, a truly benevolent king as kings should be. It's hard for us to imagine such a king, isn't it? Since the image we have in our own human leaders have been so marred and full of disappointment by their imperfect and flawed examples, isn't it? But Jesus, brothers and sisters, is unlike any other. He is the true king, the greatest of all kings. 
One commentator challenges us, the only, they only will find him, their savior at the last day, who have obeyed him as the king in this world. So brothers and sisters, let us cheerfully pay him that tribute of faith and love and obedience, which he prizes far above the riches of this world. Above all, let us never be afraid to own ourselves, his faithful subjects, soldiers, servants, and followers, however much he may be despised in this world, and in turn, us too be despised by the world. The day will soon come when the despised Nazarene who hung on the cross shall take to himself his great power and reign and put down every enemy under his feet. The kingdoms of this world, as Daniel foretold, shall be swept aside and become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And on that final day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Dear beloved church family, no elected official, no elected governor, senator, or representative will ever be worthy of our loyalty and our worship. These human leaders are put in place by God's sovereign hands. So do your part. Vote. Be clear where scripture is clear. Don't compromise on biblical values and convictions. We fight the good fight where scripture commands. We are not passive pacifists. We honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. No matter wins or losses, no matter who controls the White House or the Senate or the House, he knows. He knows. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings Brothers and sisters, we as his people know who truly reigns. We can accept losses and we can accept rejections and disappointments on earth because we know who is truly and ultimately victorious. The cross. The cross cemented that victory forever. And in him we will share in his glory. Jesus Christ, hallelujah, is our crucified king. Point number three, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Point number three, Jesus was crucified to pour out, to be poured out as the final offering. Verses 23 through 24. Look at those verses again. It says this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now admittedly, these verses are quite puzzling and hard to interpret and even awkward. The seamless tunic that's referenced there in these verses, you know what they're talking about? It's referring to Jesus' undergarments. But the occurrence in itself wasn't necessarily unusual. The Roman soldiers, knowing that the victims of the crucifixion would be dead in a matter of days, divided the dying man's garments for themselves to keep or to sell. We are told the garments were divided into four parts, one part for each soldier, so there were four soldiers present. But what were they to do with the remaining seamless woven tunic? They discerned it would be of no use torn, so they decided to cast lot to see whose it should be. Now John emphasizes at the end of verse 24, this was to fulfill the scriptures which is the first of the four times John references Old Testament scriptures in this passage alone, which we'll talk about more in point five. But here, John is referencing Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Of course, you know very well that this is not the first time Psalm 22 is referenced in Matthew's account of the crucifixion in Matthew 27, 46. The fourth of Jesus' final seven sayings is from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, Jesus is speaking these divinely inspired words in reference to Psalm 22 of his experience of physical distress and the mockery of his opponents. Well, in David's context, David's suffering and oppression was symbolized by an execution scene in which the executioners distributed the victim's clothes to elaborate the depths of his sense of abandonment. That's what David was doing. And these words written by David, perhaps unbeknownst to him at that time, would find its fulfillment in Jesus at the cross. Well, some may think or argue of the way that Jesus drew attention to himself by citing Psalm 22, verse 1 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As in a way, maybe to manipulate the situation, manipulate himself into this messianic prophecy by his great knowledge of the scriptures. Some may misunderstand, misinterpret it that way. But what do you do with verse 24? The reference to Psalm twenty-two eighteen. Jesus had no voluntary or manipulative input whether or not the soldiers would divide his garments or cast lots for his clothing. Yet John tells that it happened exactly as the scriptures foretold. We're going to talk more about this, as I said, in point number five, but I want to make sure to clarify this point. Many biblical scholars provide different interpretations of what the seamless woven tunic symbolizes. Some say it's a contrast of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, tearing his robe, shouting Jesus had uttered blasphemy in Matthew's account of Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, 65. That the seamless robe was pointing to Jesus, the true high priest. And that Jesus is the high priest is, of course, certain. But to get to that interpretation from John is stretching the exegesis a bit. Uh, There are other interpretations I can mention, but to drive the point and what I believe our passage is showing us is that the king of glory, Jesus, was utterly humiliated, even stripped naked, completely, entirely dishonored. The soldiers completely negligent of the dying man before them, dividing their garments, casting lots of his clothes. It's a picture of the wretched depravity of sinful human beings. The phrase at the end of verse 24, the soldiers did these things emphasizes the gruesomeness of what they were doing. The soldiers did these things. The utter shame and the mockery of the king of glory, he bore it on our behalf. Listen, not only was Jesus the blameless and spotless male lamb that was sacrificed as a burnt offering as described in Leviticus 1, Not only was Jesus the blameless bull carried outside the camp to be burned up as a sin offering as described in Leviticus 4. Not only was Jesus the compensation, a ram without blemish, sacrificed as a guilt offering described in Leviticus 5. Jesus would be the full, final, better, and perfect sacrifice. I want to encourage you to read Hebrews 9 and chapter 10 sometime tonight or this week, but let me just read you a few summary verses from Hebrews 10, verses 9 through 14. In reference to Jesus, it says this, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So is Jesus the true and better high priest? Yes. Is Jesus the true and better offering? Yes. Interpretation may be a stretch from verses 23 and 24 alone, but what is clear is that Jesus on the cross That he was poured out to nothing for you and me. Once and for all. No more sacrifices and offerings needed. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says, Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. To be our better and final offering. So brothers and sisters, friends and visitors. What do you think you can actually offer up to God to merit salvation? What do you think your good works can do to win favor with God? Let me just remind you, they can't. By Christ's death on the cross, we have already obtained righteousness for all who are truly repentant, for all who understand that it is not about us but him, for anyone who believes and trusts that Christ is all in all. You have all you need of him for life and godliness. You have the invitation and confidence to approach him with full confidence Don't be like our Catholic brothers and sisters who are still making efforts to make amends with God, never knowing true assurance, trying to find themselves in the good graces of God through their good works. Scripture teaches sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, sola deo, gloria, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone. Only Him alone, in Him alone, through Scripture and faith and grace and Christ alone can we merit salvation, righteousness, peace, life and hope, and an eternal future. Amen? Let's move on to point number four. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Jesus was crucified to establish the new covenant community from verses 25 through 27. Look at those verses again really quick. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother... And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Here's another seemingly random or awkward or unusual, seemingly out of place verse explanation. But this is why John's account of the gospel is not made up. It is an eyewitness account. John himself says so down in verse 35. This testimony is true. I've seen it with my own eyes. Well, let me simply sum up what's going on. Ever wonder where this idea of Christians calling ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, referring to one another as spiritual families, spiritual mothers and fathers came about? Right here at the cross. Right here at the cross. Ephesians 2, 13 through 20 says this, but now in Christ You who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So many people have misinterpreted and misapplied verses 25 through 27 by improperly venerating and honoring the mother of Jesus Mary to a position of a saint. But these verses actually contradict that very notion, doesn't it? Mary in her old age, probably widowed. Joseph, the father, has passed away at this point. Is heartbroken over Jesus' crucifixion, needed caring. She was a sinful human being just like the rest of us. We find in these verses are also trying to figure out how many women exactly there were. There's a lot of theological debate in the commentaries. Was it two women? Was it three women? Was it four women? There's a lot of conversation about that. What do you think? From my research, I'm concluding with the credible scholars that there are four Four women, Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary's sisters, Salome, mentioned in Mark 15, 40, who I actually think is the author, John's mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Don't ask me why three of them are named Mary. It's like asking why there are so many Emilys and Joshes <laughs> at NCBC. Nobody knows. Anyways, John loves contrasting and bringing out symbolism. And here, John is contrasting the brute, ignorant, cruelty of the Roman soldiers versus the broken-hearted sympathy of the four women standing by Jesus. One important note, again, which serves us as evidence that the Gospels were truly eyewitness accounts of actual historical events is that in a male-dominant patriarchal culture, women are propped up as the ones who remained with Jesus even at the cross, while almost all the disciples had scattered and ran off. They were also, women were also the first to be at Jesus' empty tomb, which we'll read about in, in the coming weeks. Quick side note of encouragement to the sisters of our congregation then. Thank you for always being the lasts and the firsts to take up serving opportunities, organizing and planning opportunities, volunteering opportunities, bringing meals to sick and hurting members, giving rides, leading the way for our church in discipleship and Simeon Trust workshops, it seems like the brothers are always trying to catch up with their sisters. So sisters, please continue. And brothers, <laughs> let's lead and serve, disciple and evangelize just as good or perhaps even better than our sisters. Let that be a challenge and an exhortation to you and encouragement to you, amen? Here's the point of this point. We know from scripture Jesus had siblings, half-brothers, who are not yet believers, but they're not present here. Jesus, instead of asking his half-brothers to care for his earthly mother, asks his most beloved disciple, John, the author of this letter, to take care of his mother. Simply put, Jesus is establishing the new covenant community in which by his blood that flowed from the cross united all those who trusted in him as Lord and Savior as one new spiritual family. Gosh, there's so much here. Like when Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son, was he referring to John or was he referring to himself, woman, behold your son? It would make sense, Jesus was referring to John, since the next phrase turns to Mary and says, behold your mother. But why? You have to ask yourself, why did Mary need a new son to care for in her old age? I think the view that Jesus, in reflecting back to the start of his ministry, at the wedding of Cana, in performing his first miracle, he had told Mary, woman, my hour has not yet come. And so here Jesus is saying with his final words, with all tenderness and affection, woman, behold your son. This is the hour I've spoken of. 
This is the reason for which you have begotten me by virgin birth. Fear not. For this purpose I was born. Not only that, I'm trying to wrap my mind around how John's mother is standing right there. But again, I think Jesus is showing us how God's spiritual family is not bounded by earthly ties, nor does it negate or undermine filial responsibilities. The point is, haven't we all as Christians experienced the blessings of Jesus' new covenant family? Many of you I am closer with than my own blood relatives. You brothers and sisters pray for me way more than my non-Christian blood relatives. You know me and I know you better than some of my own immediate family. Why? Have you heard the phrase, blood runs thicker than water? Well, did you know that the real quote that that quote is derived from is actually the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb? I don't know who said it, but they must have known and understood Jesus' new covenant. Jesus' cross establishes it, unites us, and sustains us to the end. And we know from the beginning of verse 28, the cross was not the end, but merely the beginning. In Christ, brothers and sisters, the end is just the beginning. Let me say that again. In Christ, the end is just the beginning. Death is just a doorway to new life in him, which moves us to our next point. What does the cross accomplish? Point number five, Jesus was crucified to fulfill God's redemption plan. Jesus was crucified to fulfill God's redemption plan. Look at verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me draw your attention to the first two words of the verse 28. After this. After this, Jesus knew all was finished. Jesus bearing our sins, becoming our curse. Jesus crucified as the Messiah King. Jesus poured out as the full, final, and better offering. Jesus establishing the new covenant community was the work of the cross. And by it, Jesus knew all was finished. All was accomplished. It is finished. There's so much I want to share with you about these verses, so I'm just going to conclude here and continue next week and finish out this passage next week because I really don't want to rush through the deep theology and the meaning and the symbolism that is wrapped up here. But let me just end with this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best news you will ever hear. Christ died for our sins, all of it. Sins of the past, present, and future, bearing all, bearing all, bearing every one of our guilt, shame, and past, and regrets, mistakes, and shortcomings. Christ died giving all of himself, pouring out all of himself, drinking up every ounce of God's wrath rightly reserved for us. He took it up to the last drop. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit loves you and me to the end loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. He is the true king. He is the true high priest. He is the mediator, the way, the truth, and the life. And he invites us all to look upon his death, to look upon his death, to look upon the cross and live today. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It means if you have died with him, if you have died with him, 
you will live again with him. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, I encourage you, I plead with you, repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you this moment. Trust him with your whole life now, today, and tomorrow, and forevermore. Please come and talk to any of the pastors at the door at the close of service or anyone smiling next to you. We have been praying for you to speak to you about how you can follow Jesus if you do not yet know him. Brothers and sisters, hear these parting words from Spurgeon and be reminded of what Christ's cross accomplished. He is brought to the cross. He is nailed fast to the cruel wood. The sun burns him. His cruel wounds increase the fever. God forsakes him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Contains the concentrated anguish of the world. While he hangs there in mortal conflict with sin and Satan, his heart is broken, his limbs are dislocated. Heaven fails him for the sun is veiled in darkness. Earth forsakes him for his disciples forsook him and fled. He looks everywhere and there is none to help. He casts his eyes around and there is no man that can share his toil. He treads the winepress alone and of the people there is none with him. On, on he goes, steadily determined to drink, drink the last dreg of the cup which must not pass from him if his father's will be done. At last he cries, it is finished and he gives up his spirit. Hear Christians, hear this shout of triumph as it rings today with all the freshness and the force with which it had 2,000 years ago. Hear it from the sacred word. Hear it from the Savior's lips. And may the Spirit of God open your ears that you may hear as the learned and understand what you hear. Christ was crucified for you so that you may live. Christ was crucified for you so that you may proclaim it to others, bless others, love others, to bring others to know this glorious truth. Christ was crucified for you so that you may hope. Christ was crucified for you so that you may rejoice. Christ was crucified for you so that you may stand firm. And Christ was crucified for you so that you may persevere to the end, to the eternal gates of glory. No doubt about it. Such confidence we have because of the cross. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we stand today forgiven, redeemed, despite our own efforts, despite who or what we think we are in Christ. We have been redeemed. Hallelujah. Help us to stand by that confidence, by that truth, not by the lies of the enemy, not by the lies of this world, not by the lies of this flesh. Help us to stand firm and confident, proclaiming this truth to all who we meet. Help us to not take this truths lightly. Help us to not diminish it. Help us to not ignore it. Help us to not undermine it. Help us to stand confidently and boldly that Jesus Christ is crucified and living and alive. It is in his name we pray.